Welcome to Real Life Christianity with Deacon John Lozano. This podcast is about real life and living it in the light of the gospel. Real things, everyday things, relationships at home and work, real issues that the world presents every day, the complexities, difficulties, joys and aspirations of being human. Deacon John is a real guy, a deacon, but also a husband, a dad, a businessman, as well as an experienced counselor, educator, and author. And Deacon John invites us to come as you are as he brings the transformative power of the gospel down from the clouds to real life, your life. That kind of... uh... bringing in different traditions that Baptist and Pentecostal and all kinds of music is just a great gift to us. So there's a story about a guy who goes to a card store, you know, hallmarked by a card. He's waiting in line. The guy in front of him goes up to the cashier and gives her the card. And the gal says, that'll be $5.99. The guy goes, that's outrageous. $5.99. I would never pay that much for a card. I'm not going to pay that, slams the card down and storms out. So the next guy comes up and looks at the card and says, to my wife, whom I love, and he opens up, to whom I would give anything. (laughs) Not quite. So what would we give anything to? What would we give everything to? Is there something that we would totally invest ourselves in? as first and foremost? Is there a pearl of great price? You know, uh, retreats are wonderful experiences, and we have high points in our life many times. And one of the greatest high points in the Bible was the transfiguration of Jesus on a mountain. Golly. (laughs) In this gospel, it was kind of like an early resurrection scene. He's transfigured in this... This white light, in the Greek, it's like you, so bright you couldn't look at it. So they wanted to stay. But Jesus said, no, you go down, the, go down the mountains and live your life. Do what I've asked you to do. This uh, talk is about growing in Jesus in our daily lives. We talked about... Um, encountering Jesus and meeting him. We've talked about deciding for Jesus. Now we're going to talk about growing in Jesus. And, you know, what I like so much about this, and a lot of it's in in this book I wrote, because a lot of times in life we're given the message to, to, to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, all this stuff. But not often does someone tell us how to do it. Like, what are the practical tools? It's like the story of uh, a priest, a rabbi, and a Baptist minister who uh, are getting together, and uh, the priest says, you you know, uh, guys, I could walk across this pond to the other side. I could walk on water. So the Baptist minister and the rabbi says, oh, sure, go ahead. So he takes a step out, and sure enough, he walks on water. 
all the way across. So then the uh, rabbi says, well, I, I believe in Moses, part of the Red Sea. And Abraham, I can do this too. So the Baptist minister goes, sure, go ahead. So the Jewish rabbi walks on the water all the way across the pond. So the Baptist minister gets all upset. I believe in Peter the Rock. I believe in Moses. I believe in the whole Bible. I can do this too. Takes one step, falls down. So the priest turns to the, uh, to the rabbi and says, do you think we should tell them where the rocks are? <laughs> See, where's the rocks in our life? Where's the things that we can step on that get us somewhere, that make us walk the Christian life? to succeed in the Christian life, not just hang on by our fingernails, but truly, fervently and vibrantly make it work. I think it's getting the rocks there, getting the rocks we need to stand on, getting the conditions set up, making a plan. You know, when a gardener, I like to garden, I like to grow flowers, and some people grow vegetables, and when they do that, they're very aware of creating the most conducive condition for that plant to grow, right? They know that when they put this little seed in the ground, that kind of a miracle will happen. That tiny seed will become this big plant. And they know they can't make that happen but they also know they can create conducive conditions that will make the growth of that very, very probable. So what does the farmer gardener do? Well, they make sure that the plant has good soil and fertilizer. It's getting a lot of sun, uh, getting watered. Sometimes they put a pole there so the plant can lean on it or be tied to it. And when they do these practical things around this seed, the seed is successful and it grows. It's much like the life of faith. We can't make faith happen. It's a gift. We can't make grace happen. It's grace. But we can choose conducive conditions for the life of faith that will help it, almost guarantee it to succeed. These are the practical tools that we're often not given in our walk of faith, unfortunately. Origen was a, a great uh, church father. And when young Gregory came up to him and asked him to teach him the Christian doctrine, Origen said, first come and live our life then you'll understand the doctrine. Gregory did join them, and he became a saint. But his point was this. <laughs> Live it. You know, Get around the conditions. See the conditions of Christian life. You'll catch it, and it'll produce something in you. Gerard Manley Hopkins had a, a person who was wrestling with God come up to him and didn't know about God, didn't know how he'd discover God, and Hopkins said, give alms. 
Be generous. You'll discover something. Do something practical. Uh, theologian uh, Mark Marion had a heated debate in his philosophy class once, and the student asked the pointed question, you know, how can I believe God? How can I know this? And his answer was, go to Sunday Mass for a year, return and ask me the same question. Do it and see if it doesn't affect you and answer your question. Live it and you'll get it. Put the conducive conditions in your life. I think there's three critical conducive conditions like fertilizer and sunlight and rain. It's prayer, service, and community. Prayer, service, and community. If you have those conditions regularly in your life, your discipleship will flower. It will be empowered. It will become something. These are the practical how-tos of the life of faith. It's how we grow in faith. So, first one is prayer. Why do we pray? Because we love him. I know I asked that one time. Someone said, to get what I want. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but ultimately, it's hopefully because you love him or you want to love him. And you can only love someone you know and you can only know someone you communicate with, to share with them and then back to you. Friends, I'm just going to leave you with something that is probably the most, it's the only thing I've shared over, I don't know, 30 years of doing this that I'm absolutely convinced of. I guarantee it. And that is that if you pray 20 minutes every day, It'll change your life. If you pray, maybe you start with 10 if you're not, can't do 20. If you pray 10 minutes or 20 minutes every day, it will change your life. I guarantee it. And I've never known anyone who took me up on that, who didn't come back and say, yeah, I am different. It's not that you're going to be a different person or lights are going to appear or any of that, but after a while you start sensing a greater peace in your life, a kind of sense that God is more with you. You start hearing God speak to you in very subtle ways. The fruits of the Spirit, the joy and peace and love of God are just coming alive in you because you spend 20 minutes eyeball to eyeball with Jesus because you're there. And even if you're distracted the whole time, there's grace present in that. Don't judge your prayer. Just do it. You know, when a little kid uh, comes, comes to his, uh, his grandparents or his parents and says, look, Mom and Dad, I, 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 I made you a, a Mother's Day card or a Father's Day card. And they go, wow, that's beautiful. Well, you know, I'm not really good at, at drawing, so I got Sally to draw, and I'm not really good at writing letters, so I got Tommy to write them. The parent would say, no, 
No, I, I, want, I want your letters and, and your drawings. And so when the child does it him or herself and brings it home, what does the parent do? Goes, oh, this is wonderful. And they stick it on the refrigerator. And they show everybody that comes in, look what my daughter, my son did. That's what God does with our prayer. He takes it in enjoyment, has this great refrigerator in heaven, sticks it up there because his children have come to him. No matter how scribbled it is, the parent doesn't say, oh, you, you drew out of lines or those colors don't match or you misspelt that word. No, they don't. Prayer is efficacious, friends, efficacious. It has effect when we pray. It changes our life. There's nothing else to say about it. Now, yeah, well, you can learn how to pray better and you can follow methods, but you just got to pray. When someone asked Thomas Merton, probably the greatest spiritual writer of our generation, how do I grow in faith? How, no, how do I grow in prayer? Thomas Merton, written dozens and dozens of books, Three words. Take the time. <laughs> that was it. Take the time. Give God 20 minutes of your best every day, and you'll put a rock under your life that'll transform it. I guarantee it. And I know it will work. I pray every day of my life. Now, sometimes I'll miss a day. But when I start missing them, I start sensing the difference. Things aren't quite the same. Let me read you a couple of uh, things about prayer that I think are very helpful in terms of getting our heads on right. This is by Henry Nowen. Why should I spend an hour in prayer, he prays an hour, when I do nothing during that hour of time except think about people I'm angry with, people who are angry at me, and a thousand other silly things that happen to grab my mind for the moment. Sound familiar? <laughs> the answer is, listen to this, because God is greater than my mind and my heart. And what is really happening in the house of prayer is not measurable in terms of human success and failure. What I must do is be faithful. It's not measurable the way we measure things. What I must do is just be faithful. The remarkable thing, however, is that sitting in the presence of God for one hour each morning, day after day, week after week, month after month, sometimes in total confusion with a myriad of distractions, radically changes my life radically changes my life. It's that simple, and it's that important. You know, how many times do you read in the Bible, they woke up and Jesus was off praying by himself? Jesus got up early and went off to pray. You read it a lot. And I'm often thinking, if Jesus needed to pray every day first thing, Maybe I need to pray. Just maybe. I often wonder when Jesus came back from prayer like that, talking to his father, they probably saw him. He's probably, you know, stones throw away. They're in the 
fields. What did they look like? What did the disciples see? Jesus just praying with his father, and then he comes back. What was his countenance like? What did they see in his eyes? What was it like to see Jesus a prayer and come back from it? I bet you they said, I don't know what you got, but I want it. That's why they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like that. And he did. Because we can call God our Father. Now, how good is that? That you can come as you are and call God your dad, your father, your pops, and be with him. Here's another one that I, I like very much that I think could uh, really help. It's by uh, Peter Kreeft. We have, uh, see, our biggest thing with prayer is we don't think we have time, right? We're too busy. Peter Kreef says this, we have time and prayer backwards. We have time and prayer backwards. We think that the time determines prayer, but prayer determines time. Let me say that again. We think time determines prayer. Prayer determines time. We think our lack of time is the cause of our lack of prayer when our lack of prayer is the cause of our lack of time. Now listen to this. When the little boy offered Christ five loaves and two fishes, he multiplied them miraculously. He does the same with our time. If we only offer him this little bit in prayer, it's little, literally miraculous what he does. Yet I know from repeated experience it happens. Every day I say I'm too busy to pray. I seem to have no time, accomplish little, get frazzled and enslaved to time. Every day I say I'm too busy not to pray. I'm too busy not to pray. Every time I offer him my time, loaves, and fishes, that's beautiful, to Christ, he miraculously multiplies them. And I share in his conquest of time. I have no idea how he does it, but I know he does it time after time. You want to get a hold of your life in Christ. You want to get on top of things. You want to be vibrant with him. Pray every day. Every day. Pick a time that's best. When you're not distracted or half asleep, pick a place where it's a conducive and just sit there and pray. And this will happen to you. What do you do when you pray? Well, in my book, I have a thing, P-R-A-Y, pray, repent, ask, and yield. It's a little technique that, what do I do in prayer? I usually take that out and praise God for a few minutes, thank him, sing one of those great songs, repent of things in my life, examination of conscience. I ask a lot for a lot of people. I beg for some, and I yield. I sit quietly before God and listen. Okay, service. Prayer, service. Dorothy Day said, everything 
a baptized person does every day should directly or indirectly relate to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Every day, something we do should relate to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, wherever you are and however you do it. You don't have to be in Calcutta, but in your daily life. You can call someone up. You can check in. You can pray for someone. And these are like little lights that go off of God's presence through charity in the world. Johnny Cash says, when he was asked why he performed concerts in prison, he said, because the gospel tells me to. (laughs) I love that. Friends, love in the Bible is an action. It's not a feeling. You know, we've got that all caught up in our culture. It's all about romance and feeling. It's not at all in the Bible. It's about how we act towards our brother or sister, our neighbor. Love is as love does in the Bible. Teresa of Avila said the most potent and acceptable prayer is the prayer that leaves the best effects, those that are followed up by actions where we love another. When people would come to be with Mother Teresa, someone new would come to their mission, she would say this. This is great. She said, you're not here to work. I mean, these women, you ever watch them? They work their tails off all the time. And she says, you're not here to work. You're here to be with Jesus. (laughs) That's why they do the things they do. That's why they work. And horrible, because they're with Jesus. You know, the most uh, poignant and challenging scripture in the Bible with this is Matthew 25, which we've all heard. And I'll just read two lines. You all know it. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Ill, and you cared for me in prison, and you visited me. The amazing thing is that both the sheep and the goats, those who do it and don't do it, both said the same thing. We, we didn't see you. Where were you? Whatever you did for them or didn't do, you did or didn't do for me. See, there's no separation in God with those who suffer. He's most identified and present there in our lives where we suffer and everyone's. And that's where we meet him. You know, I've had a lot of uh, evangelicals come up to me and say, are you saved, brother? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Um, Catholics say, are you in a good state of grace? You go to church? You gonna go to heaven? Keeping the commandments? I've never heard somebody come up to me and say, Are you living Matthew 25? Never. It's right there. Are you living this? That's one of those gospels we just want to forget about. However we live that, we don't have to be in Calcutta to serve another. As Teresa of Lisieux said, whatever the current demand of love is, 
we love. Whatever the current demand. And then we meet Jesus and love him. It doesn't have to be, and you know this. You, you've been to visit people in, the, in, in hospitals and uh, at funerals, and you meet him. And one time hugging a guy who lost his wife, and he gave me this hug, and he started, his tears came off his cheek, and his cheek, he's Italian, he's really close to me, and tears came down on my cheek. It's like the face of Christ. Now, one thing I, I uh, this was really driven home to me once. See, one thing, I, I try to do this. I try to serve the poor and, you know, help people as best I can. But there was one of those beatitudes I, I just never wanted to do, and that was prisons. <laughs> There's something about prisons that make me really uncomfortable. And I've been on service trips. I've been to Haiti. I've done stuff, but... No, God, I don't want to go to visit somebody in a prison. It just, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was something I watched as a kid. It was just so weird to be locked up and stuff. So anyway, I'm in the parish, and one uh, of our parishioners, who I knew pretty well, uh, did something really, really bad. He was arrested, he was convicted, and he was thrown in prison for a long time. And I knew him, and I knew his wife. So his wife came up to me and said, John, would you go visit him? I said, sure, but I want to make sure he wants me to. So we had to communicate through letters. We couldn't, it took a long time, and finally we got the guy, word came back, he really wants to see me. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I drive to this prison, and it's just like on TV. They take you in, everything's locked up, and then you sit in a room and then they take, you know, make search you, and then there's all this, and then you sit in another room. And eventually you're in the, the visitor's room, it's all everything's bolted down in steel, and there's this big plexiglass wall, and there on the other side, and there's a phone, just like on the movies. So I'm sitting there waiting for him, and eventually he comes in. He's smiling from ear to ear, comes up to the plexiglass, puts his hands on it like this. So I put my hands on it like this, and through the plexiglass, I could hear him say, God is here. And I'm like, ooh, don't say that. I didn't say it to him, but I felt like, I'm not God. Don't say that. So we sat down, got the phone, talked for an hour. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. I ended with prayer with him, and he was elated by the visit, and I was like going home like, this was great, you know, driving home thinking, I want to do that again. So it's about two or three weeks later, I'm thinking about it. I'm remembering, God is here. Boy, that's, he's missing something there. And then the shoe dropped, and I got it. Yeah, God was there in him, in him. Maybe he didn't know it, but God was there at that moment, but it was in him. God came to him. All I did was show up and meet God there. I'll never forget it. Last one is community. So how do we build a fervent life of discipleship and faith? How do we make this happen? 
How do we not get chewed up by our culture and the busyness of life and the demands? You pray every day. You serve people. When you serve people, the grace happens in your life. And you find community. You share your life with other people of faith. It's why we have church. You make a plan, and you stop, start living it. I think uh, the problem with church for us as Catholics is it's a sacramental church, and it's very big. So you go to church. There's an experience of Christ in the Eucharist and the sacraments, and then you go. Unless you have this, people, retreats, a small group, Someone said a Bible study, a faith-sharing group, a service team, a good friend, a spouse, somebody to share that life of faith with. It's just not going to happen. Jesus shared his life of faith with 12. They with one another. He sent them out in twos. Don't do this alone. The shared life is absolutely critical to the life of faith. And we don't get too many presentations on this. Let me read to you a brief passage that drives this home in a very unique and, I think, special way. It's the road to Emmaus. You know the story. Now, that very day, two of them were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. Now, they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. Boy, how beautiful is that? Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. But their eyes were prevented from seeing him. He asked them, what are you discussing along the way? They stopped. Now listen, pick up the feeling in this. They stopped looking downcast, downcast. One of them named Cleopas said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And he replied to them, what sort of things? And he said, the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, how the chief priests and rulers and handed him over a sentence of death and crucified him. Listen to this line. But we were hoping, hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Boy, they're in a low place. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted what referred to him in the scriptures And as they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression of going further. But they urged him, this is a beautiful line, stay with us. Stay with us. For it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And it happened that while he was with them at the table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. And with that, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts 
burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us. Friends, this is Luke's way of answering the community's question, where is the risen Jesus now? And he gives them three places. The Bible, the scriptures, in the Eucharist, and the shared life. Somewhere along this journey of Catholic faith, you and I need to be burned by the word of God, singed by it, to have a heart that has been touched by the fire of God's word. Were not our hearts burning within us when he spoke of the scriptures? It could happen at mass, it could happen here, the privacy of your own life, hearing a scripture, reading a scripture. It gets you. I can't make that happen. You can't make it happen. But somewhere on this Catholic journey of faith, that's got to happen. The second way they meet the resurrected Jesus is when he breaks the bread. It's instantaneous in Greek. They see him there in the bread, and the person they were looking at vanishes. They see him. They meet him in the breaking of the bread, the risen one. Somewhere in the Catholic journey of faith, that's got to happen to us. No one can prove it to you. No one can make it happen. It's got to happen. And if it hasn't, ask him, and it will. The third place, and this is the one we miss, all the time, where Jesus is the resurrected is met, met, is in the shared life. The two disciples who are leaving downcast are sharing with one another. Obviously, they're sharing deep turmoil and sadness. In fact, in Greek, it says they're sharing from their the gut, from deep within. It's an intimate, profound sharing. These disciples about Jesus, about his death about this darkness. They're leaving town. They're checking out. They're in this profoundly difficult sharing. And as they go, Jesus shows up and walks with them. How beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful lines in the gospel. He just starts walking with them in their conversation, their shared life. And they don't even see him. But he's still there. Friends, when you open your heart to another disciple and share it, share the contents of your heart or share about your faith, Jesus shows up. There's, he's there. It's like when we share our life with another person of faith, it creates a disposition where God can come, where he can show up and he can join us. And here's the thing. This happened before the Bible and the Eucharist. It was like the disposition of discipleship that prepares us to meet him in the word and in the Eucharist, the bread. 
Somewhere in our life, we've got to find this, and it's hard. It's one of the reasons I say, good for you for being here. At some level, you do this here. We're doing it right now. And you, can, you do it when you talk to people you haven't seen about faith you, you, at this retreat. And, and Jesus shows up. You wonder why retreats work. Well, that's one of the reasons. It's, it's in the Bible. Find it. Put it in your life. Prayer and service and community. It's what makes the rocks that we have to stand on. It's what makes the resurrected one come alive in us. So, friends, that's the way forward for growing in Christ. Daily prayer. Yeah, just about every day. Even if it's in the car, is that the best you can do? Turn off the radio. I pray in the car. (laughs) Serve in some fashion in your life. Really love another out of yourself. Doesn't have to be dramatic. And try in some way to find a friend, a spouse, a community, a Bible study, small group, retreat, where you can in some way share your life with another believer. It'll change your life. So let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you that we're here today. We thank you that you teach us the way to you. And we ask you to help us to pray. Help us to serve and help us to share our life with another. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen. We thank you for listening and for sharing the good news with Deacon John, who asks you to come back often and support him by subscribing, by rating the site, and please share our site with others in your circle.